Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen, we talk about new internet-only films in China, the story of the story of Taipei, and for our films this week, I covered Dealer Healer, the new Hong Kong drug trafficking drama starring Lao Cheng Wan, and Paul will cover the Indian blockbuster mega epic hit Bahubari. This is East Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk on top of a bull with flaming horns is Mr. Kevin Ma. Bahubali! <laughs> How are you hey, doing, Paul. sir? I'm all right, Paul. How are you doing? I was trying to sing the song from Bahubali, but now I don't remember... Actually, is it does it go like, Bahoop? It, 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 does, is there actually a line where they just go Bahoopali or something yeah, like that? I don't yeah, know. I think at least in two something of the like songs. That. So in in yeah. both in both parts, there's a there's a definitive Bahoopali song. Um, right. That is sung as sort of a chant. So you're close. I mean, just saying the words Bahoopali and it's like you're already, um, you know, part part of the song. Um, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about that that very epic film or, or, you know, du- duality of films. But uh, before we get into that, I mean, it's summertime here in South Florida. Very, very hot. Is it? How is it where you are weather-wise? Are you guys starting to heat up there? Yeah, it's getting pretty hot and uh, the sun's out, thank- thankfully. Um, and you know, things things are heating up. You know, I think we're about to hit 30 degree um, range here, but I think the rainy, the June rainy season is also coming upon us. So, uh, I think we're going to get a big dump of rain, um, later this week, Paul. I don't know how, how, how is the, um, what's rainy season over there in Florida? It's kind of rainy season now. I mean, we don't, I don't think we officially hit hurricane season until the end of this week. I remember correctly and it's technically I mean we've been talking a little bit about summer movies right because summer movies start actually back in spring um, now because of the way that Hollywood pushes things out there for West Screen films but technically like when you think of summer here in the States it's like summer is going to be starting this week in June because school's out right I mean my daughter her um, pre-kindergarten ends this week and um, the the summer camps will be starting in the, in the coming month, and so when you're a kid, that's like summer, right? Because there's there's no school, but it seems like we've been in summer for a long time now, movie wise, because we've already been having all these sort of big, you know, blockbusters, Marvel movies. There's a new Johnny Depp Pirates movie. Um, we've got Wonder Woman later this week at the time of the recording, and we've got still a couple more big sort of. Hollywood summer films successively set to be released in the next couple weeks as well. So it's just weird when you think of the seasons in terms of 
movies versus other things like, you know, school or <laughs> the actual weather outside, right? Oh, we're not going to school anymore. I no longer consider summer a, a, a particularly notable season anymore because, you know, no, you know, we still have to do what we got to do, right? Life yep. goes on and it's just a bit hotter and uh, just means that it's time to put away the winter clothes, which is uh, more things to do around the house. Otherwise, um, you know, it, it's nice to see the sun out and, and, you know, that makes for good weekend outings, I suppose. And the summer for me, it's great because that means there are a lot of summer movies to watch and it's time to go, kind of time to go back to the multiplex. But, you know, my favorite time will be in the fall because, you know, you have the uh, better uh, uh, award contenders films. And of course you have the return of the Hong Kong Asian film festival and more other film festivals. So for me, summer is kind of, a break and also means long stretches without any public holidays here in Hong Kong. Ah, uh, yes, the the lack of uh, public holidays. But you do have a big one coming up, right? No, we just had one back on Tuesday, the Dun Wu holiday. Right, but you the... got, you've, got, you've got that really, really big one coming. I mean, the really big one, right? Start, but... start, start of next month. People in the streets, dogs, oh, right. dogs, and dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria, right? Yeah, that's gonna be fun. <laughs> Um, no, that's on a Saturday, so we don't get a we don't get a public holiday. So I'm sure that's already pissing people off this oh. year. Uh, so uh, yeah, uh, no idea what's going to happen, but uh, let's see what let's see if there's still a city to to record from after right. next after right. next month. All right. Well, we are not here just to talk about the summer and the heat and movies. We are here to talk about some news and other stuff too. So let me throw the talking stick back over to Kevin at his news desk with this week's news. Over here at the news desk. Um, so we've been talking about this whole internet, you know, Netflix versus can debate for what good two weeks now. And um, Chinese internet company Tencent has sort of thrown its weight into this argument by announcing a slate of 10 internet only films. Um, this happened towards the sort of the last weekend of can. Uh, I'm sure it's not really time to coincide because, you know, Chinese publicity schedule don't really follow the rest doesn't really follow the rest of the world but anyway the um this announcement uh is called the flying wings film scheme um it's a joint venture uh between tencent who created wechat um internet video streaming site iqiyi uh fox international production sina entertainment uh shin pan chang a uh internet filmmaking community and Bole Pictures and Goodfellow Pictures. Uh, so it's a seven-company joint venture. The idea is that they're producing these 10 internet films by 10 young filmmakers, and they're all based on existing properties that are on um, Tencent's animation and comic book site. Um, so so they're trying to make more sort of these genre, different genre um, with young directors, but without relying on, on cinemas. Um, the, the 10 films are all produced, co-produced by, um, so director Zhao Tenyu, who did, um, what was the film with Winston Chow's The Bad Guy, the one with, uh, the, the, the fantasy film, do you remember? Ah, uh, Zhong Kui, Zhong Kui, there you oh, go. Yeah. Zhong Kui. Um, uh, Japanese producer Takashige Ichise, who did the, uh, the, the, the Grudge franchise, uh, Hong Kong scriptwriter Susan Chan, and they're all co-producers on these 10 films. Um, and seven of them are already done, so they're starting to roll them out in the second half of the year. Um, and they cover 
a wide range of genres, including, you know, mystery and, and fantasy and horror and comedy and romance. And it's interesting because, you know, while we're, you know, people in France are talking about how, you know, they de- cinemas demand that that films go go to uh, cinemas. You know, you gotta give these films a fair chance at finding a, an audience and protecting the sanctity of the theater going experience and all that. Here you have Chinese, a big Chinese company. You know, more like um, um, pleasing or pandering to the, the target audience. They know that they're, they're targeting these things toward younger people, and they know that younger people um, don't really go to cinemas much anymore, unless it's, um, especially local films. And that you know, cinemas are not making things any easier in China. Um, cinemas tend to be quite uh, risk averse, and they only pick gift screening shares to the big, big films, and it is shut out, shutting out a lot of smaller independent films. So this is sort of their way of going around the the gatekeepers and and getting these films out and trying to nurture these young filmmakers. So I find this uh, plan, especially the timing of it, uh, very interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, we did kind of touch on this in our discussion last week where I think again if you're really looking at the up and coming demographic um, their tastes and their demands for media have changed and uh, unless cinemas start to really rethink or there there starts to be a a lot of progressive pushback in terms of education uh, you know film appreciation and really cinema appreciation that kind of stuff I think um, it's good, you know, the, the cinema experience is going to be a hard sell for the mass market. I mean, you're still going to have um, critics and you're still going to have film fans and film files who will enjoy the cinema experience and will support that. But I think on the whole, that's really just going to be, you know, the industry is going to take a major hit unless they can, um, you know, come up, come up with something new. And, you know, we could go back into... The, the old Edison debates, you know, versus the like the Lumiere brothers and, and that kind of stuff in the very foundation of cinema, right? And they, nobody really knew what medium was going to take hold. And it looked like the social experience of the cinema that, you know, originated in France was what captured the global imagination, right? Going out an evening on the town, dressing up. I mean, cinemas used to be these really lavish places, and that was the thing to do and to go and to be seen. Whereas like Edison's approach was the, you know, very sort of individualized thing where you look down in a, in a, in a small personalized screen and you crank a handle. Now that's kind of come back, right? Because everybody has their own individual devices and they want to screen what they want to screen on demand. And it's a different kind of mindset. And for young people, I think that that's something that they've really just tapped into. So maybe things will change. I mean, maybe the culture will change back, but I think education really needs to be a big part of that. And unfortunately, that's not on the agenda, at least, you know, in, you know, at the secondary <laughs> level of education, um, unless you're looking to go into, you know, college level film studies. Oh, no, I mean, you know, I've always, always, always will prefer a cinematic experience when it's available. But the thing is, um, um, cinemas hold so much power now. There's such gatekeepers in, especially in China, where they are, you know, really about making profit. And it feels like for cinemas in China, they don't consider what they do any. They don't feel like any. They have to take on any social responsibility or cultural responsibility in what they do. To them, it's like, look, you have a film. I have seats. I have, um, I have a. Uh, 
um, I have I have tickets and I have um, I bring in the audience. I bring in the audience for you, and they're kind of bullying the film film companies around in China. Um, you know, by being these these gatekeepers, by not making um, by not giving many choices to filmgoers, and and um, there's a really long struggle. Um, I interview a producer um, for for something a while ago, and I asked him, "Does the cinema do cinemas have more power here in Hong Kong and than anywhere else?" And she said, "Like it's even scarier in China because at least Hong Kong cinemas would give you a few days. Almost it's almost like again this whole this whole dynamic where they become the gatekeeper of what is good enough to be shown to the audience and what is not. And and the, when we talk about the struggles of of big money versus artistic integrity. I mean, this is why. I mean, filmmakers they the the their their first priority is really to get their films funded. Right. And 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 if there are so many traditional gatekeepers keeping away, you know, uh, while other other funding funding um, sources are available, like via Netflix or via you know, um, Tencent uh, and and ICE, then the first thing they want to do is they want to get their films made, and that's what. It's gonna change the industry. I think the fact that that um, cinemas are getting more and more limited in choices, but I think that um, you got these smaller video um, these companies who don't really have to sink any money, who can save money sinking distribution and put that money into being a bit more more um, um, experimental with their choices, with their choices of investment. Um, this could make things interesting. Although I just say I, I just watched uh, War Machine over the weekend. There's the new uh, Netflix production of Brad Pitt, and and the kind of indulgence in there starts to make you know it started to make me think maybe maybe we do need some gatekeepers in this industry. Hmm. Yeah, that's popped up on my feed. It, I'm not sure if that's uh, up my alley or not. It it, it looks uh, a bit lampoonish, which I tend to like, but um. You know, it's uh, seems to be war genre stuff. I'm not, I'm not that into the war genre of things. Well, no, it's a very interesting film in that it's very ambitious, and you could tell that because the film was made for sixty million dollars, and the film would never have made it. One, it, it would never have been made for sixty million because that means it would have to make a hundred and eighty million dollars worldwide for a traditional company to make its money back, which is impossible. A film like this, um, a a sort of satirical film about the Afghanistan war is not going to make $180 million around the world. So um, it almost like, okay, this needs to be on a, a more risky, a more um, risk taking platform. It either had to be made for much cheaper or, or it had to be on, on a platform where you don't have to worry about spending money on distribution and release and booking cinemas and, and traditional marketing. And it seemed like, so I could tell, okay, this is why it needed to be a Netflix film. So um, it's going to be interesting how this changes the way films are made and whether um, the, you know, because, you know, when cable, when cable started taking up, you know, taking on, you know, film directors, people say that, you know, cable is the new art house. Is it, are Netflix and Amazon going to be the new art house? I think that would be a very interesting development. Well, well, we will keep you appraised to see if that happens. Second story uh, of the week. Um, there's a new film in Taiwan, and um, this is a film where I wish that we could watch on Netflix. Um, it's a very low-budget film called The Story of Taipei. Not Edward Yang's Taipei story, mind you. It is uh, This is a new um, low-budget uh, film called Story of Taipei, and apparently it's so bad 
that has become the cult hit of the year in Taiwan. Mm. Um, it's made by a low. Uh, it sounds, sounds more Chen. like more like it's along the lines of story of Ricky, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the film is directed by this guy called um, uh, Chen Yingsheng, and it, it was shot three years ago. And apparently, it was made for a very low budget, like one million Taiwan dollars. Um, and apparently, the acting and the writing and the directing are so horrible. Um, that it's it's gotten the attention of film buffs, and um, it's only playing in one cinema in Taipei uh, once a day, but it's been filling up every day for the last two weeks. And the more people, t- and, and apparently the film is so bad that it's getting, it's you know, the film is getting applause and really huge laughs, and people are going going to it like they're rock- watching a Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of attitude. Mm. Um, and the film has sort of become like this big cult hit um, in Taiwan now. In fact, um, if I can quote. One film, one Taiwan filmmaker on my Facebook feed, he said that he's, he, um, he's never thought that the cinematic language could be reinvented, but then he's now seen that film. So, <laughs> so I am uh, super, super excited to watch this film. Um, I'm going to Taipei for the Taipei Film Festival later in, uh, in early July, but now I'm contemplating a very, very quick trip to Taipei mm. just to see if I can catch this film over a weekend or something, because one show a day, which means it's going to run for a while, and, um, uh, yeah, it just sounds like a cult hit in the making, Paul. All right, yeah. I mean, it's you'll have to let us know or report back if you get to see it because uh, if it's that good, you know, maybe it's a passion island worthy of a commentary, right? Yeah, apparently it's even switch worthy. But unfortunately, the screening in Taiwan right now only has Chinese subtitles, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they can afford to even get English subtitles on these days. But um, <laughs> well, we'll get, we'll get you to do a fan sub for us. <laughs> Oh god! Not for free, Paul. Not for free. Um, Do it for choice- the fans. Do it for the fans. Uh, uh, apparently, a lot of the, the the really bad directing is all sort of work gags, and uh, there's this long conversation about like like matching watch like matching time that has nothing to do with the rest of the film. This really uh, apparently inept epically inept filmmaking that is really right up my alley unfortunately um i really can't wait to see this film so if anyone in taiwan any listener in taiwan who's seen the film and want, want to give us a review please um please let us know yeah it's amazing how these kinds of things tend to spring up every now and again um be it you know something like rocky horror or what what is the one um kind of famous in circles over here i think it's called uh the room and right. it's like, uh, you know, and I think it was done done in the West Coast. And it's like so bad, but it's like so funny at the same time because it's so bad and people like to make fun of it. And it's developed this whole cult following. And I think there are classes taught on it now. And um, so it's always interesting to see this stuff happen kind of organically rather than when they try and force it, you know, because, I mean, there are some shows out there that strive for that right they they try and strive to make things bad intentionally because they want it to become viral or they want it to become uh cult and you know it's much better when it's organically done without intention you know um troll 2 and and stuff like that yeah we all know what the really next cult hit is going to be paul and that is the lewis Koo alien cat movie Yes. That is going to be. <laughs> I want that movie to be our story of Taipei. Please make it happen. Please oh. be bad. Please be so terrible that we have to. We have no choice but actually to appreciate how bad it is. Yes, yeah, the story of the year, people. If you don't believe me, look up the trailer on YouTube. 
All right, that's going to wrap it up for our news this week. We'll take a short musical break, and we'll be back with Kevin's review of Dealer Healer. in the film Dealer Healer. That's right. Um, Dealer Healer is the latest film from uh, Lawrence Lau, who you may remember as the director of Beseech City and My Name is Fame. Um, this is his first film in quite a quite a while, actually. Um, and it's uh, based on a true story, uh, based on the story of a man called Peter, named Peter Chan, uh, who actually is a producer on his own biopic. Um, anyway, the story... Uh, Chen Hua, played by Lao Cheng Wan, uh, was once the leader of the famous gang, the 13 Chi Wan San Warlords. While roaming the dangerous seats of, uh, streets of the Kowloon Wall City, he loses his family and ends up imprisoned for his drug abuse and trafficking. After spending time in jail, he devotes himself to saving the lives of young drug addicts, even winning the Outstanding Young Persons Prize. Respected by both the criminals he used to know and the police, Chen Hua becomes a famous peacemaker. However, losing his wife continues to haunt him. Um, so Lawrence Lau is doing the biopic thing. I mean, this is sort um, most ambitious work in quite a quite a while. Uh, Lawrence Lau has always been known for being this gritty, realistic sort of almost cinema verite filmmaker. Um, and part of that shows here, especially in, in his uh, depiction of life in the Kowloon Wall City. Unfortunately, the Kowloon Wall City is put together by really, really terrible special effects. So it looks like Lao Cheng Wan is running in like the worst. You know, one of those games where you're stuck in a in a in a windowless room and you have to figure how to get out. Imagine like a digital game version of it, and that's what Kowloon Wall City looks like. And 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 Lao Cheng Wan trying to run out of it. Uh, in front of a green screen. It looks really terrible. Um, Lawrence now tries to juggle three different timelines in one go. So in the beginning of the film, we see Chen Hua, the character, interviewing for the young person's prize. We're actually not sure what point of his life this is happening, and the film never makes clear about that, because um, um, at, after that, it sort of flashes back to um, his time in Kowloon Wall City, which is a bit weird because now you have Lao Cheng Wan and Gordon Lam and Max Zhang, you know, these 40-year-old guys playing, like, late 20s, men in late 20s, which is only the second least credible thing to be on film um, after Takeshi Kaneshiro tried to play a high schooler in The Crossing. Um, it's just almost just as unbelievable. Um, and then the film also go then goes back even further in time to see the Lao Cheng Wan character, Chen Hua, um, when he meets his wife, when he was still like a young thug, you know, who's who's like ruling the Chi Wen Shan district. So you got these three parallel timelines, and you're not sure what year it, everything is happening. But he's also just doing this, trying to condense the story into a 
100 minutes, I think, and it just sort of confuses the audience along the way. Um, because quite a bit of the film is devoted to after Chen Hua comes out of jail and becomes this this social worker and this fixer. So you don't know who who had nominated him for this prize, uh, when he won it, and and whether, you know, because um, Patrick Tam also shows up as his sort of uh, his boss, and you don't know what his role in this whole thing is, and you don't really quite know when everything's happening. All you have to know is that he's winning this young person's prize because he's, the, he's become the best man ever. Um, anyway, the first half of the Kowloon Wall City stuff um, is actually quite compelling. You got Lao Xingwen playing this you know douchebag of a criminal and this low life, and and he's trying to sort of play both sides. He's trying to be the the trusted right-hand man of the big boss but at the same time he's trying to strike out you know strike out on his own with uh, his own drug trafficking business against the wishes of the boss so he's he's kind of an immoral character playing both sides and um i wish there's a bit more of that because it's actually quite compelling the way that Lawrence Lau sort of depicts the street life um but of course this being a co-production it's, it's quite easy to guess that Chen Hua would become the best man ever because he has to redeem himself. And, you know, this is a film produced by the real Peter Chan. So, um, again, obviously, he's going to be quite a, a, a positive character. Not that the film actually actively avoids the bad parts of Chen Hua's life uh, in the first half of the film. He, Like I say, he comes off as, as quite a jerk. Uh, which makes his re- redemption even a um, bit more cathartic, I suppose. That's the whole idea. Um, th- so um, the real Peter Chan apparently uh, um, be- we became reformed when he found uh, religion, and he became a religious person. And um, uh, a um, because you know a-, a lot of these these um, drug rehabilitation facilities are one run by religious organization and peter chan did became a religious man um but the film um really avoids most of that uh, I, I think they never even mention once that um uh chen Wah's character becomes christian um and so i think that's that's wise because you have to sort of appeal to more of a wider audience and once you bring up the religious stuff then your film sort of becomes typecast as a as a as a as a religious film or as a gospel film or as a uh, a christian film and that's a bit of a negative uh, label in terms of commercial film industry so um uh, uh the film does avoid that part even though it does get pretty preachy so at least you got that part going um, it would have been a much better film, I think, if um, Lawrence Lau was, was giving more room to let his story breathe a little bit. I think the film might have improved a bit, extra 10, 15 minutes or so at least, to sort of sort of let the the, the, the plot the plot rest a little bit and let, let things sink in. But um, right now, at a hundred minutes, it, it moves quite quickly um, and and never really stays in anywhere too long. And I guess for some people who like shorter films, this is good. Um, it's interesting. It'd be interesting to see because, uh, so Louis Ku shows up, uh, actually he plays quite a, quite a, uh, important character. He plays a dirty cop who, um, sort of become, um, Chen Hua's ally, even though we have no idea why, because, uh, the almost practically the first scene, you see Louis Ku saying, telling the Lao Chuan character, I don't like you. And next thing you know, ten minutes later, they're like best, you know, they become buddies, and then, uh, and then later in the film, they, they become BFFs. Um, so it's a bit odd to see that story not being developed, even though that's the core sort of friendship in the film. Um, the, the scenes between the two actors show natural chemistry. Uh, Kozo 
friend of the show, even he says that, you know, that plot only works because we know it's Lao Chen Wan and Louis Ku talking, not because it's the two characters talking. So, um, uh, and yet it feels like that story only exists because they got Louis Ku to play that role. Because if you had taken that role out, you eventually would have a pretty similar story. I mean, that character plays, does an important thing that helps Chen Wan, but that could have been any other character. Um, so it, it feels like, oh, because we got Lewis Ku, better, you know, better beef up that character a little bit, make it more important. And that's kind of what it feels like. The main actors are fine. Um, Lao Cheng Wan is always pretty good. And, uh, Lewis Ku, uh, again, has good chemistry with Lao Cheng Wan. But Max Zhang is really the standout of the film. Uh, he's really quite surprising. Um, he's, uh, he's actually born in China, but thanks to, I guess, his, um, uh, marriage with Ada Choi, the uh, the famous Hong Kong actress. His Cantonese has actually gotten quite good, and he speaks completely in Cantonese through the film uh, in his own voice. Um, and his story of redemption actually feels more interesting than Peter Chan because Peter Chan sort of it almost seems natural that he naturally sort of segues into this this life as a fixer and becomes a really powerful guy and he's like the best man ever. But Max Chang's uh, the character, his character's road to redemption, it's a bit more. More, more jagged, it's a bit bumpier, and I think it would have made a more interesting uh, story than than Chance. Um, the preachiness of the second half, uh, the I guess what we call the RTHKness of the whole thing, um, uh, brings the film, drags the film down a little bit. Um, it plays like an after-school special, really. Um, this is a bit more violent and a bit edgier, a bit more drug use, but otherwise it's a pretty standard sort of after-school special-esque type of film that you might, or, or program you might see on TV here. Um, Lawrence Lau apparently had a hand in the English subtitles, and I wish he didn't, because uh, a lot of the uh, the dialogue, especially in the second half, becomes more sort of too complicated for its own good, that it strays away from the translation. At one point, one character even says, hubris who the hell says hubris anyway especially in the, in the, in the subtitle um so it's it's really best that Lawrence out does not really touch the subtitles of his own films anymore um anyway the actors are great lao ching one is great gordon lamb is great louis ku is pretty good and max shang is outstanding and if you're a fan of the actors it's 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 um definitely recommendable but um, if you're not a big fan of the actor and the theme, the story doesn't really interest you, go with your gut instinct and give this one a skip. It's, it's okay, but um, it's, um, you really expect better work coming from this team. Um, and maybe one day we'll see a more complete director's cut that Lawrence Lau put together. But until then, it's really just an okay film at best. Hmm. Is it? Is it? I mean, this is not a word bait material at all, right? It's. Uh, is it more along the lines of a below the lion rock episode i think they wanted it to be a, a, a an award bait because you have such a great you know true story and you have this this caliber of actors in there but at, at the end of the day i think it, it won't really earn anything mm-hmm. um as far as i know it's no train spotting it's no you know it's not even like a good undercover film it's just sort of like you said it's kind of a below the lion rock-esque very tv-esque type of type of story or type of film
And welcome back. For our film this week, not really a West Screen film, more along the lines of another East Screen entry and two entries, if we are being technical about it, uh, our review of Bahubali 1, the, the beginning, and Bahubali 2, the conclusion. Uh, these two films as a whole are going to take up about five and a half hours of your time. So be prepared if you want to take these on. Um, this is my first, I believe, my first uh, encounter with uh, Tollywood as opposed to Bollywood. Now, Bollywood, I guess, is indicative of films that are primarily done in Hindi, you know, as the primary language. And, you know, th there's been some, I mean, pop culture aspects of that that have gotten around in, in the States and in the Western world. And so it's it's a very sort of recognizable thing. Tollywood, however, perhaps a bit less so. The, this is the... Uh, cinema in India that is more uh, centralized around the um, languages of, I guess, Tamil and Telugu, Telugu, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Although they do translate over to Hindi, as in the, the two films, two versions of the film that I saw. Um, you know, they, it's, it's kind of like Cantonese cinema and Mandarin cinema, right? You get different actors speaking different languages, and then they have to sort of do post-dubbing to cater to all of the masses that they want to get out there to, to see these. So I'm not familiar at all with really any of these actors and actresses as I was looking through their filmographies, um, my very limited exposure to Bollywood films that I've seen over the years. Um, you know, the, these are people who primarily are very new to me. Now, Kevin has more experience in this area than I do, so he may um, have a bit more background on, on some of these. But, you know, for me, if it's not like Shah Rukh Khan or... <laughs> Amir Khan, it's pretty much, you know, people I'm not going to recognize that much. So despite that, um, I, you know, as a sort of entry film into this subgenre of Bollywood, I would say uh, this is the place to, to really start and, and sort of catch your interest on fire, as it were. Uh, this is directed by director S.S. Uh, Rajamoli, and the central character is played by an actor with a single name, uh, Prabhas. So quite a few of these actors, as I'm going through the list, they just have single names. And how cool is that, right? Uh, to be known as, a, as, as, you know, by a single name like Sammy or Andy or something. Uh, let me talk a little bit about this story, because when I say it's epic, I mean, d please do not, please do not take that lightly. This is a, an, a story on an epic scale, like we don't really see a lot of these days anymore. So Prabhas plays the central character here, um, but he also plays two roles. So it gets a little bit confusing because of the subtitles and, and the naming conventions that they use in these films. So I'll try to be as clear as I can on some of this. But the story is very basic. And if you're familiar with a lot of mythology stories or hero tales, you know, Joseph Campbell kind of stuff, you're going to see a lot of stuff that is very much by the numbers for the most part. Um, story starts out with a woman fleeing with a child as she escapes the palace of uh, Miha Shmati, and only to be caught in the depths of a raging river during her escape. As the woman perishes, she entreats a deity to save the child, and the infant is summarily saved by a group of local villagers. Raised to adulthood, the boy shows remarkable strength and character, um, but his thoughts constantly turn to the immense waterfall that lies above his village. When a wooden mask with a beautiful visage one day falls beneath it, he is motivated to scale the waterfall, a seemingly inhuman feat. But scale it he does, and his adventure begins. And that's just 
the beginning. I mean, really, that is just the beginning of the beginning. Um, as I said, at epic on a scale that few movies strive for anymore, the film is also very much rooted in mythology. And for those familiar with Indian mythology, this is a fantasy. So it's not like based on the classic literary works like the Mahabharata or the Ramayana. But you can definitely tell that there are elements pulled from those literary works. Um, lots of themes that resonate here. Um, morality tales, things about duty and loyalty and dharma and all of that are kind of woven throughout this. I believe the director was on record as also saying that he was very much influenced by Indian comic books as well. Um, so this very much has a manga-esque or comic book style feel in many places. Um, and it's not entirely a fantasy like Lord of the Rings, but it's more, I mean, there, there's like not, you know, sorcerers and, and spellcasters and that kind of stuff. But I mean, it's more along the line of Greek myth. So if you think of something like Hercules, you know, these these demigods who can go around and do incredible things who are, um, you know, heads above the, 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 the average human, um, as it were. Uh, and in some ways, that's kind of the film's, one of the film's failings. Um, and, and I'll get into that in, in a little bit. But really, that's just a, a minor quibble. And if you're somebody who likes, you know, tales like that, like tales of Ulysses or Hercules or those kind of things, this is something that's going to appeal to you. And if you're somebody who likes epic long stories with lots of politics and lots of characters, you know, thinking Game of Thrones, again, Lord of the Rings, something like that, this is also something that I think you can really get into. Um, yes, it has tons and tons and tons of CGI. I guess a majority of this is probably shot um, on green screen or is being rendered within a computer, but a lot of it works. I mean, especially if we compare it to not Hollywood, but perhaps a comparable cinema stuff coming out of China, um, you know, League of Gods and things like that. Um, you're you're going to see some stuff that works and some stuff that doesn't work quite as well. Um, and here I think most of it works. They really kind of up the scale when they get into the second film, though, which is obvious because the film was doing um, so much good business and, you know, that's where they dumped... A, a bigger part of the budget. And while it may not be as tight or nuanced as something like Lord of the Rings or, or Game of Thrones in terms of some of the character depth, I think it comes pretty close to being in that league. So while a fan of Hollywood cinema is might, might look at it and nitpick some things, it's really great to see something of this scale on the international stage doing so well and looking so good. And then you add into all of that, that this is a musical. Right. So, I mean, imagine the scale of something like Lord of the Rings and then Peter Jackson saying, you know what? You know what's missing? We got to throw a dozen songs in here spread across the movies, at least. Right. So you've got all that scale, all that production work going, all that design work. And on top of that, you've got music and dance. Um, so, I mean, again, it just conveys this sense of this massively epic undertaking and you know, it, it's an epic in terms of the, the story itself that it's trying to tell. So, as I said, Western audiences may have trouble at first because of the name conventions and the way the subtitles work here, at least the subtitles that I saw, and the nonlinear narrative that they kind of push through. So, in the first film, you are introduced 
to this child in a very sort of, again, Joseph Campbell-esque hero, you know, chosen one kind of story. Um, you know, a, a boy on a river rescued, <clears throat> raised, you know, by foster parents, but has bigger things to achieve and he goes on to achieve them. Um, and so this, this first story, the first movie is kind of about the ascension of Bahubali, the son that is Mahendra Bahubali. And then as he you know, <coughs> scales this waterfall in, in this, in this uh, epic sequence, and then he goes on to find the, the woman of his dreams. And as he does this, he is also caught up in her quest, which just happens to involve his real family and his, his you know, kind of his legacy, uh, as it were. Um, and that's kind of where the film comes to. And it's like, oh, he finds out who his mother is and what happened to her and this kingdom. And he was, you know, he's a descendant from this kingdom. And oh, and who his father was and, and what happened to his father. And then up oh, and now you got to wait a couple years for part two. And so part two recently released uh, in April of this year. It was, I think, originally scheduled, at least according to uh, the trailer or the, t the, the title card at the end of the first film, was scheduled for release in 2016, but I think they pushed it back a little bit. And so we got it uh, internationally in April of 2017. And so that is here, and I was able to get out and watch that uh, this past week. And it just continues on. Um, and I would say that in terms of the storytelling elements from the first film, the second film, I found the second film to be stronger because the first film is about the son primarily, uh, Mahendra Bahubali, and then the second film jumps back in time to focus on his father, uh, Amarenda Bahubali. So they're both named Bahubali. They're both played by the same actor, Prabhas, and it can it can get a bit confusing because sometimes, because they often only refer to the characters Bahubali sometimes. And so wait, is it Bahubali the son or Bahubali the father? Um, but after a while you get into it, you'll be able to make the distinction. Um, it also doesn't help that sometimes they refer to Bahubali the son uh, by his ad adopted name of as uh, Sivudu and sometimes as Shiva uh, in the subtitles, which Shiva is a deity. And so... It was a bit confusing at, at times, um, and perhaps that might have been a subtitle error uh, as well, but I'm not sure. Um, but the visual design, as I said, very strongly influenced by comics, but also contemporary cinematics. You've got lots of slow motion sequences, Matrix-style sequences, you know, lots of soldiers ganging up on Bahubali, both the father and son at times when they're fighting, and and they'll like, you know, explode and the soldiers go flying off in lots of directions in slow motion. Um, and, you know, there's a seek, there's quite a few sequences that are evocative of movies like 300, where you've got this very sort of fantastic, almost still image that's put up on the screen as things slow down to such a slow speed that it gives you almost like a comic book style frame. Um, but despite the overuse, it's still very entertaining. Um, I never felt at a point that I was like, okay, we've seen this one too many times. It's time to, to move on and do something else. They were constantly finding new ways, I think, to, to play with the slow motion, um, to make it engaging, to make it just different enough to keep you compelled to watch, to keep you 
you know, moving, a fo- moving forward and rolling along with the action that they're showing. Um, in terms of the musical sequences, as with any Bollywood film, not all of the songs work. Some songs are great. Some songs are kind of there to, to pass the time. You know, I, again, I think back to some of my favorite, like the sci-fi ones like Robot and, and um, others. Some songs I really love. I, you know, bought the soundtrack to listen to all the time. Other songs, it's like click, click, fast forward, fast forward to the next one. Um, and so that, you know, your mileage is going to vary with that here. Good time for bathroom breaks, though, for a long movie like this. And that's one of the things I noticed in the cinematic screening was that I was not alone. Um, there were quite a few patrons who the song came on and whoop, they're out the door going to the bathroom. So I think they, <laughs> I think they know what's what when it comes time to some of the songs. But some of the songs were really, really good. Very elaborate costuming, very elaborate dance productions. Um, and, you know, overall, nothing that really wanted me to, to say, oh, I'm done with this, you know, or, or, or I want to leave or I'm bored or I want to fall asleep. Um, but these are long, long films. Um, the beginning clocks in, uh, according to online sources, at 158 or 159 minutes, depending on the language version you're watching. On Amazon, which is how I watched the first film, um, they have it there. It's 152 minutes, so it's trimmed down a little bit, and it's only the Hindi version that they have. Um, the theatrical version I watched is stated to clock in originally at 171 minutes, but the Hindi version I watched in the cinema was at 165 minutes. So a little bit trimmed, trimmed down there uh, as well. Kevin, do you remember the length of the one you saw? Um, I'm checking the i uh, I'm checking Apple right now to see the, the the length of the one I saw off off uh, iTunes. But actually, that 171 minute probably isn't very reliable, mm. just because just because the way Wikipedia works, um, or the 165 that was on cinema websites aren't that reliable. But mm. I, the film felt pretty much like uncut to me, yeah. so uh, I'm pretty sure that that there wasn't really anything trimmed um, in part two. Um, but I think that, uh, part one, also if whatever they put on iTunes should be the, it felt like the uncut version to me. I mean, for Christ's sakes, I mean, what else are they going <laughs> to, yeah, I mean, you know, well, it, it although, is... although, although it is worth noting that actually the, um, the, the U S iTunes store has all, I see four, four different versions of the film. They have the Tamil, the Telugu and the Hindi version on iTunes. Oh, excellent. Anyway, excellent. I... I'll, have, I'll have to go in the. Look at that. The Amazon just has the one version, to, to my knowledge, at least at the time I rented it. So and I, even on the and even on the iTunes store, um, they do have different running times. But um, yeah, it seems like the Telugu version and the the Tamil version run two hours and thirty eight, but the Tamil the, the the Hindi version runs two hours and thirty two. I have no idea if this is for real um, because um, later. I think uh, when they're trying to cut it down, they actually brought in, or this version that you see right now, the first part, they actually brought in Martin Scorsese's uh, uh, editor to come in and 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 do an edit on the film. So I'm not sure if the version that we see right now is the post Thelma, um, uh, um, what's her name, Schumacher, Shoe, mm. uh, Schumacher edited version, or if it's the whatever version. But you know, like, you know, there's so much stories in these films that once you cut out maybe one or two minutes, it's really not a big deal. As I was commenting over to Kev- Kevin during uh, watching the first film, they actually have a disclaimer at the start of the film that all the animals in this are mostly CGI, no animals were harmed, and everything. 
But in one specific scene in the first film, they actually have a subtitle that's kind of as a watermark on the screen where the evil king is wrestling a Brahma bull and it says CGI animal to, to make sure that the audience knows that, you know, it's not a, re- you know, because they're, they're sacred animals, that it's not a real animal that's being harmed, you know, in, in, in the video so or in the film. So I found that to be very interesting. I didn't see them do that in the screening on the second film. I don't know if that will get carried over onto the video version or not. Um, and there There's was definitely a, there was definitely a disclaimer um, because remember there were like like five minutes of disclaimer in the th- in the in the yeah. second film yeah and and one of them is the whole like oh no animals were harmed they were mostly CGI so I remember that very distinctly like that was a, a one of the disclaimers that I haven't seen in an Indian film in in some time yeah so they were very specific about that and there was one sequence in the there's a sequence in the second film where a character gets his fingers sliced off and he's like holding his hand up looking at the the stubs of his fingers and reacting to that and they actually put in um you know the, sort of the the, the what is the, the mosaic <laughs> that they use in category <laughs> 3 films they actually put a mosaic over his hand so you couldn't really see anything and i thought oh, okay that's an interesting you know sort of an interesting choice for violence here cuz it's re- i mean there's violence throughout the film but that's like you know of a, the scene of an extremity where a person's alive, they show people getting decapitated, you know, and, and other stuff. And that's like, fine. Uh, it was just a weird choice. Why? And maybe, maybe the prosthetic didn't look that good. <laughs> they wanted to cover it up. But <laughs> I just, you know, it seemed like an odd editing choice at, at that mo- po- point in time. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the, the characters themselves. Um, so this is a very much a good versus evil story. Between Bahubali, the the father, Bahubali, the son who comes to avenge him, and uh, Baladeva, who is the sort of foster brother of Bahubali. So Bahubali's mother dies in childbirth, and he is raised by the queen, the Raja Deva, uh, known as Sivagami. And she raises him as her own son, but she has her own son, who's Baladeva. She raises them together as brothers. And over time, it comes to pass that Bahubali is the better of the two. He's more moral. He's more devoted. Um, you know, he has a better sense of right and wrong. And so this, you know, forms the the friction between these two characters, right? And then um, eventually, as it comes to pass through politics and betrayal and everything, Bahubali, uh, Baladeva comes to rule the kingdom, and you learn how this comes to pass in the second film as it sort of jumps back and tells the story of Bahubali the father. And um, so the two of those characters, Bahubali, both father and son, but more particularly the son, I felt, um, and Baladeva, the evil brother slash evil uncle king, uh, you know, Devaraja, um, both of those felt not too deep. I mean, Bahubali's best man ever, and Baladeva is worst man ever. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, that's kind of that's kind of how it is. Um, over the top, comic book esque style characterizations. Bahubali always has the right answer, the right response for the moment. He's super strong. He gets things done. Um, he's super romantic. You know, he's a man's man. All of all of that stuff, and, and 
Baladeva is not a polar opposite because he's also very super masculine, super strong, but he's the he's the the evil aspect, as it were. Um, he you know he he's not opposed to killing innocent bystanders, and he's not going to make for a good ruler. Um, this this is established. But despite them not being super deep as protagonist antagonist, most of the cast I thought was great, very engaging, very interesting. Um, you know, especially the queen, Sivagami, um, she has a, the, the actress herself has a way of glaring <laughs> that is just, <laughs> it will floor you. Trust me when I say this, it will floor you. She has these stares and these emotes that um, are just awesome on the big screen. Um, Deva Sena, who is the consort and wife of Bahubali, the father, and then by proxy, the mother of Bahubali, the son. She doesn't have a huge, huge role in the first film, but sort of her romance with Bahubali, the father, is a big part of the story in the second one. She's great, um, both in the action sequences that she does, the dance sequences she has, um, and just the character moments that she has on screen between other, other characters. There's a slave character who's like the head of the royal guard, named uh, Katapa. He's great, too. Again, he has a bigger role in the second film, and his sort of... It's kind of like Voyage of the Emperor Chin Long. You know, he kind of goes on a road trip with with the Bahubali to see the kingdom, and it's like the two of them kind of palling around and teasing each other and fighting together. That's all really good stuff. Um, You also have this character called Kumara Varma, who's the cousin or brother-in-law of Devasena uh, in her kingdom and he starts off as kind of this goofy character and he has an arc to where he sort of kind of comes into his own through the guidance of Bahubali and I, I kind of equated him to the Jar Jar Binks of the series except way cooler by the end um, because of the you know sort of the transformation he goes from being kind of a buffoon to being a, a, you know a pretty decent character so there's quite a bit of depth in the other characters outside of the protagonist and the antagonist. I think a lot of people see the protagonist and the antagonist and go, man, that's just such, you know, they're just such on paper heroes, you know, and, and heroes and villains um, that you've seen. And But that that's what, they, that's what they are. That's what myth is, right? It's really about those kind of, you know, black and white, good and bad kind of kind of things. The masculinity patriarchy on display at times is going to be very cringeworthy, I think. Um, But because of that, it's also very interesting because a lot of the film is dominated by this very strong women. Again, you've got most of the film is, you know, in in the part two, when they're talking about the history, you've got the the queen, the Rajadeva um, Sivagami. She's running the show, right? She's keeping the politics you know, and, and the political machinations at a minimum until things start to spin out of control. And as I said, Devasena is is great. You know, as both the mother and um, the the wife of both the characters. Um, so while you've got, you know, you've got these things where it's like very much a man show, masculine courtship, flexing the muscles. You know, so much testosterone on the screen. At the same time, you've got really great, strong women presence, women fighting, women holding their own, you know, in political theater. And that, all that stuff I thought was really, really great. There's this whole thing of of uh, the Bahubali son, Sividu, when he woos the girl he likes, who's named 
uh, Avantika that might have Western feminists in an uproar, right? Because what does he do? He's She's like this rogue uh, re re rebel warrior, and he's like pursuing her secretly, and he's like drawing tattoos on her arm when she's not looking. And, and in this big song and dance sequence, he basically disrobes her from all her warrior garments, and he spins her around, he puts her in a dress... He puts lipstick and makeup on her, you know, through all these smooth moves. And, and you know, she's trying to, you know, be aggressive and, and, and stop him from doing it. And she can't. And so by the end, you know, she's like looking at her reflection and she's gone from this rough rebel warrior to this beautiful girl with makeup. And, you know, it's just like something that I think modern Western sensibilities are looking and go, oh, my gosh, that's so patriarchal. But at the same time, she's she kicks butt, you know, and, and she, she, she's able to shift from back and forth. So it's a very different kind of take on um, some aspects of masculinity, femininity. And, and it would be a shame to just throw this away because of th things like that and say, oh, this is just, you know, male patriarchy, because it's not. There's so much more to it going on here throughout the length of the film. Overall, I think the second film is more interesting and intense of the two. Again, I think Bahubali, the father, as a character, is more interesting by his design because we see more of him as he grows up, as he develops, as he overcomes challenges. Um, his courtship, as I said, of Devasena is far more entertaining than his son, uh, Sivudu's courtship of Avantika. And I wouldn't say you should see part two without seeing part one. I mean, it is possible. There's a little bit of recap, but you're still going to be missing um, quite a bit. So, you know, do try and see both parts. But, uh, yeah, by the time you get into the end, the last hour of the last hour of this is like one big battle. Um, and I was thinking, man, this is just going on and on, but it wasn't dull. It was like they kept it fresh by doing new and different things throughout. There's one sequence where, <laughs> you know, it's just so over the top that it just, at that point, if you haven't suspended your disbelief, you, you're probably not going to be in, watching the film anymore, but they're, they're like, they're, guys are holding hands and they're holding shields and they're being catapulted over walls as like human catapult balls. <laughs> it's like, that was okay. my favorite thing it's, in the world. Like, like take that Wolfgang Peterson and yeah. Troy and screw your Lord of the Rings physics. It's like by that point, you know, if you're not on board with this film, you're never going to be on board. And like I said, I don't think you would have lasted that long. Um, and it's over the top, but it's still great. It's still immensely fun. Um, and I mean, the only, aside from sort of the two-dimensional protagonist, antagonist characters, the only downside for me was that there was not much of an epilogue for this film. It's like they've gone through all five and a half hours, the big battle, but then the final showdown between the the Uncle King and Bahubali, the son, and, you know, okay, so you get to the ending, you know what's kind of coming for, for an, an epic like this, you know, how these morality tales end up. But then it's just like, and this is what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm now the king. And it's like, that's it. And, you know, I wanted much more closure. I mean, I don't need full-on Lord of the Rings going to the Grey Havens and, and, and all of that stuff, but still a little bit more, you know, would have been nice. Uh, some characters are kind of, from the first film to the second film, are just kind of dropped off. No, most noticeably, Avantika, who, you know, they has such a strong presence in the first film, she's barely in the second film. 
Um, she's got a couple scenes, but really, you know, there, there's no sense of closure with her character, with, with the other characters. It just kind of ends. And maybe they were out of budget. <laughs> and that's all they could do. And okay, I get it. But I, I would have liked a little bit more um, of an ending. So, but nonetheless, it was a great, fantastic ride. If you are not somebody who would normally seek out Bollywood or Tollywood films, I got to say, this is an easy one to recommend just because of the sheer spectacle of it. You know, if you are not averse to spectacle films, this is definitely something. And, and of course, subtitles. This is definitely something you got to check out. I mean, it is, especially the second film, it is kicking butt and taking names in terms of box office. It's broken box office records for um, for films in the Indian market. And I'm, I've got to imagine it's doing pretty good worldwide as well. Um, so, you know, don't be... Don't be afraid to check this out, even though you may not recognize much of what's going on. I think you'll recognize quite a few of the themes. And if you don't mind a big epic with some music and dance thrown in, I think you're going to have a good time. Uh, Kevin, you've seen both of these. Lay it yes. on us. Lay it on us. Yes, I've seen both these. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Bollywood films and Indian films. I'm always reminded of the... Uh, I did an interview of uh, an indie Indian director... Um, and he says that, you know, I think there's one, one thing that the West always gets wrong is that they always think there's one India. In fact, there are actually about 50 Indias within India. So, um, uh, what's amazing about Bahubari is, is how, because South Indian industry, uh, South Indian film industry has always been about the South Indian film industry. They're made for the South Indian audience. And, you know, you got the, um, those people in Delhi or is it Mumbai or Delhi? Sorry. Uh, in the Hindi speaking region, they watch their Bollywood films and they're pretty happy with it. And it's always been a dominant sort of industry of the, uh, of India. Um, while you got, you got all these little sub industries happening in, in India as well. So they don't really touch each other in, in many ways. They don't even, the films don't overlap or in fact, Tamil films, sometimes they will remake Hindi films and, and vice versa. So for, for Bahubadi to, to sort of be so big that it, it, it attracts audiences in all of these little small industries. Uh, and that's sort of the amazing thing. Um, now for an Indian film, I think it already has a lot less music, musicals, sequences, uh, and a lot less dancing, if I remember correctly. Uh, there are a few. I mean, it is old-fashioned. It is an old-fashioned masala movie. Masala meaning, you know, one of those films where they throw in everything and, and see what comes out, what sticks and what comes out on the other end. Um, and it's a very typical masala movie um, in terms of um, uh, the, the the structure and, and even some of the storytelling techniques. But um, it's already a bit more restrained in terms of the musical stuff. Uh, now knowing knowing the Indian film structure, you expect when you watch an Indian film, you always expect an extended flashback in the middle of the plot or in the first act. There's always, there's always a flashback, and it always runs too long, and it always takes up way too much time. Here, I thought I, already, I was already amazed at the end of the first film. The flashback still hadn't ended, <laughs> and then next thing you know, the question that they pose at the end of the flashback in the first film doesn't get answered for another two hours so now you're wondering so the whole film to me is really weird because you're like was this movie a flashback or was it actually just framed around this plot like 
like which is flamed framed around the longest book end scenes ever because the book end which is the modern stuff about the sun that takes about an hour and a half of screen time and even if you're just framing the story of the dad around it you still have an hour of stuff here like it's another story it's another film so to me that structure was always a bit odd in terms of how like how they didn't even they don't even you know structure a little you could have a, a lot more economy of storytelling if you had just taking out the story of the sun or we just told it maybe chronological order i don't know um so that to me was always a bit strange even as a fan of, of indian films um by the Prabhas, Prabhas, i think he's a really mega star in south indian film industry um of course not as a bit different because they don't get exposed as much as the the bollywood um, the Hindi the stars, but Prabhas is a pretty big star, and you can tell here. And I've always liked, and I, and one of my favorite things about these films is that you they do not, they don't skimp on the production value. You know what I mean? Like they actually put every single dollar that they put, spent on this movie on the screen, and you can see it. It's all there. It's very epic, and it is a smarter, it is more um, intelligently put together than one might think. Uh, especially the way that they lead the audience into the cheers. There are a couple of scenes that actually even earned cheers when I was watching it with the Hindi audience. And, and there's an audience that's not familiar with Prabhas. Like, they wouldn't make such a big deal that Prabhas is on screen, whereas Tamil or Telugu audience would be like, ooh, 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 whatever. But even in the Hindi version, there were uh, at least one or two moments that actually earned real cheers among the audience, which is a bit rare because um, mid-film, you pretty much have a normal film audience when you go watch an Indian film in Hong Kong. Uh, they go a bit wild in the beginning and then they settle down and it's fine. But here, like, there's that one scene that got, like, real cheer. Um, and, and I was quite amazed by how well received it was. Um, otherwise, you know, I think Bahubali, I'm not sure if Bahubali is really the best sort of intro to Indian film. In fact, I don't even know if it's best intro to a Tamil film or a Telugu film. Um, maybe as a Tamil and Telugu film, because that this is a bit more um, um, uh, more of a big breakthrough in terms of uh, using music and dance. But um, I would try and watch a more a simpler film, for example, English Vinglish um, or Dear Zindagi, which is by the same director, um, or Dil Dakne Du, which was from uh, last year, is, is a family comedy that's also three hours long, but you know, at least it's not five hours long. Um, um, even perhaps um, Amir Khan's uh, Free Idiots or um, his latest Dango, the one that's a huge hit in China. Those are a bit more easier entryways, I think, into the world of Bollywood. Um, in fact, even Disney made a princess movie in India uh, called Kupsarad. Uh, that was a uh, romantic comedy. Uh, runs only two hours and doesn't have that many musical sequences. So that's also a very easy entry point. So once you see enough of these and you sort of get an idea of how Bollywood or Indian directors um, um, idolize their heroes and over-idolize their heroes and make them the superpower and all that stuff, once you're used to that, once you stop laughing at it, once you stop mocking it, then Bahubadi maybe is a good okay, it's time to take on Bahubadi. Because if you are going into that that frame of mind where you're going to make fun of everything or if you find everything funny or anything that's slightly just a bit off normal is going to be funny to you or, or something that's old-fashioned is going to be funny to you, then don't watch Bahubadi because you're going in for the wrong reason. Um, so, you know, Bahubadi is not really the best film ever made. I don't think it's a... It is pretty epic, like I said. It either has the longest flashback ever in, in, in Indian film history or the longest bookends. I don't know, but it's got to be some kind of record. Um, 
so yeah, if, if you're kind of used to it and you like to see a bit something different, uh, then Bahubadi I would recommend. Sure, I mean it's practically essential viewing for any fans of Indian cinema. Sure, uh, but as a starting as an entry point, maybe maybe I would try something a bit more, uh, a little bit less less Indian film esque. So um, another film you could add is Piku, uh, which stars Topika Patakone. Um, it's a road trip film. It's a it's a fa- it's a daughter daughter father film, and there's no songs in there whatsoever. It's a straightforward plot. Um, or if you're a fan of Quantico, the U.S. series, uh, you can watch something by Priyanka Chopra. Uh, one of them is called Ramila, Ramila, which is a bit more uh, music. It's a pretty much full on musical. And it's a remake of um, Romeo and Juliet in India, which I think is fantastic. Uh, Against the Peter Pika Pedicone and uh, Ravir Singh. Uh, with Priyanka Chopra as a, with a supporting role. So these films are... Oh, was that... Sorry, was that... That might have been by Jasto... Um, that might have been another film. Ramila is definitely Patacone and Rear Singh, but by Jaro Mastani, I think that's the one we're talking about with, with Priyanka Chopra. Sorry. But uh, anyway, those films are all sort of nice little entry points. Shorter shorter flashback, shorter plot, um, and, and, and um, less sort of old-fashioned big action scenes that you might mock i think i think a lot of stuff for example like you said the whole shield thing and and the, the overacting and the sort of shakespearean almost shakespearean um level of drama here i think it might be a bit too easy to make fun of i think it's quite mockable if you're not familiar with these just these, these type of films i mean the shield thing is is funny but it's I mean, it's nothing. I mean, you could find stuff like that in Marvel movies. You can find stuff like that. You know, that's just like sometimes it's a bit too over the top. Um, well, even the scene where the the, the young Bahubadi uh, courts the woman by you know taking off her clothes off. I mean, that's perfectly normal to an Indian audience. But for us, it'd be like WTF, right? I and I don't want people to watch it with that eyes yeah, to, to go yeah. in there and, and with Western eyes and putting Western values on it. And I want to go in there and accept it as it is as Indian cinema. It is what Indian films are like. And it takes that kind of, that kind of, you know, sell, selling in process to, I think, to really get into what makes Bahubadi so cool mm. and to watch it from the Indian point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think that if, if you're somebody who is a fan of, you know, Oh, going back to like the uh, you know the stop motion Sinbad movies that Ray Harryhausen did, you know those kind, you know, or even some of the old biblical epics in some ways. I mean, it, the 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 scale and the level that's there. The acting is different for compared to modern times, obviously for those older films. But you know, if you're somebody who can appreciate that kind of stuff, who gets entertained by that stuff, and you you know is you don't look at it ironically in a sense because i mean i guess if there there are people who go to films i guess I, like you were talking about the cult cinema earlier right you know like i know that they have troll 2 screenings all the time and people go and watch that film because it's cult and and they they appreciate it in a sort of ironic sense but i don't think i don't think this would garner that i mean i think it's just pure out action over the top entertainment um I don't know, I think there's still, I'm just a bit sensitive because this year, um, one thing I noticed at the Hong Kong International Film Festival is that people are coming in with more, uh, a more ironic sense of humor than ever, even on like films that don't particularly deserve it. For example, apparently Seven Samurai had a bunch of laughs. 
Um, even when I watched a the silent film by uh, Fritz Lang mm. called um, I forgot what it's called, but there's a whole section because each film takes place in a different country. Now remember, this film was shot in 1919, um, so obviously it's not going to be the most it's not woke, you know. What I mean, it's mm. not going to be the most culturally sensitive film ever made because you know this is what the nine people in nineteen twenty see different cultures, and when it got to the Chinese part, the, the part about the Chinese culture, and then everyone just kept laughing, and I'm mm. like, this is a pr- serious film. If you watch it as a historical document, you just take it as is instead of keep mocking of your modern sense of humor. It's out of place. It's the wrong place, wrong time. Then I feel like young audiences, especially now, they feel like they're more hip if they find things to laugh at. And I mm-hmm. feel like that is a complete, and I feel like that's a, how some people would approach Bollywood film to begin with, or Indian films to begin with. And, and if you're going with that sense of mind, and I think, I think that may perhaps Bollywood isn't for you. Yeah. Or Indian films aren't for you, but like, like Paul, like you said, if, if people are into these sort of old creature features and they understand the whole, these type of films, um, and, and perhaps they have a bit more tolerant, um, and they aren't in there just to, you know, have be a hipster. Then, then I think <laughs> that they would do fine. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. Listeners like Peter from Canada, who wrote me uh, just the other day in a very nice, lengthy email, uh, just sort of expressing some of the stuff that he'd been, you know, doing, watching out in cinemas, and also some of the more recent episodes that he'd been catching up on. And it was great to hear from him. He did uh, write in that he had seen Shockwave, a film we reviewed a couple episodes back. And he said, uh, appreciated Kevin's review and background on the three tunnels. The last and only time I visited Hong Kong, some stuff had not been built yet. I thought a pretty, it was a pretty standard Andy Lau movie. And the love interest was photographed a bit unflatteringly, but it made her seem more age-appropriate, um, which is interesting. You know, we were talking about age-appropriateness in the last film. This is not what I expected between uh, Ken Shiro and um, Zhou Dong Yu, right? Um, and, of course, Andy Lau, <laughs> you know, he's getting up there. He's <laughs> he's going to be a grandfather <laughs> before we know it. Um, but, uh, you know, he's they, they still kind of cast him with, with younger younger actresses now and then. Uh, he also goes on to write, uh, he was able to suspend his disbelief, and although I agree with Kevin that the perfunctory characterizations of some of the supporting characters was grating, particularly the greedy businessman and the baddie's brother. Uh, unfortunately, my version was the Mandarin version, but enough stuff blowed up real good, and Andy Lau did enough of his usual noble shtick to satisfy. So thank you uh, to Peter from Canada, and if you would like to be part of the show, please do write in and get in touch with us via our website at concast.com or on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast, or you can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can also find us on Facebook at East S West S. Again, if you have thoughts on films you've seen, ideas that we talked about, or things that we may have missed, you know, please do drop us a line and let us know. But as always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing as he moves and shakes across various film sectors and, and things that he does. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? 
you can uh, look at my newest website, uh, asiaincinema.com. Uh, that's one word, Asia, and then in, and then cinema.com. Um, you can uh, follow the Facebook and Twitter accounts of the, the website as well. It's called Asia in Cinema, if you search. Um, I am also on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Uh, oh, my day job. I am the entertainment editor of uh, Cathay Pacific Airways and Cathay Dragons uh, Discovery and Sigro Magazines. Uh, you can read those content on your flight, or you can um, uh, go to the website um, cathaypacific.com slash discovery to see some of the latest uh, in-flight um, entertainment recommendations. I think June issue is going to start, you know, in June content is starting to go up. So you will see uh, my review of a Spanish film called The Fury of a Patient Man. Um, and Maggie, uh, Maggie Lee uh, has written a uh, very strong article about um, Personal Shopper and Get Out, so two, two horror films. Uh, and that's all coming up in June. You can also email me at kevin at asiaincinema.com. All right, excellent. Um, next show, what do you think you'll be talking about for East Screen? Well, I think maybe perhaps we could talk about um, the new Netflix documentary about Joshua Wong, perhaps. Uh, Joshua, the something about versus superpower or something like that. We're kind of running out of Hong Kong films, but there is a new Taiwan film coming out this week that I'll try to catch. But uh, we could probably talk about this new Joshua uh, Wong film that's on Netflix. All right, excellent. West Screen looks like we have Wonder Woman on deck for the coming week. You got plans to go out and watch that, sir? Wonder Woman, yes, definitely. So I'll definitely catch that as well. All right, so all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying you have to use three arrows. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Bahoo, buddy! But enough stuff blowed up real good, and Andy Lau did good enough of his usual notable, notable his usual noble stick, shtick. Sorry, <laughs> read, that. <laughs> read that again. Uh.